This is a Federal News Network podcast. Agencies across the board have been turning to innovation challenges to come up with fresh answers to old problems. Now, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, part of HHS, has launched a challenge. SAMHSA is looking for new approaches to behavioral health recovery. Here with details, SAMHSA Administrator Miriam Delphin-Rittman. Dr. Delphin-Rittman, good to have you on. Uh, Hi, thank you for having me. And let's talk about behavioral health recovery and the innovations required. What is the problem precisely you're trying to get at with this challenge? So, you know, we are so excited about this challenge. Uh, It is an opportunity to hear from peer-run or community-based organizations in the field and to hear about the innovative recovery work that they're doing uh, across the country. And so that's, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for innovation. We're looking for creative ways that peer or community groups are, are working with individuals struggling with substance use or mental health challenges and the ways in which they're implementing SAMHSA's definition of, of recovery and helping people to uh, live full, whole, meaningful lives. And I wanted to ask you about what is SAMHSA's definition of recovery, because when it comes to substance abuse and mental health, your agency mission areas, very often those seem to be taken as afflictions or conditions that are mitigated and maintained and managed, but not necessarily cured for good. Yeah, so, you know, we see recovery as a a sort of a process or experience in which individuals uh, are able to live, as as I mentioned, full, meaningful lives, despite any limitations of mental health challenges they may experience. We see it as uh, uh, individuals being able to experience, you know, health, home, community, and purpose. And those are four key pillars of recovery that people are connected to health and and homes and community and have purpose. And what is the scope of the problem nationally, do you think? Because it's kind of hard to get a sense of the numbers here because of how many different, I guess, organizations at the state and local level are involved in mental health issues. Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly what we know is that uh, that mental health and substance use challenges is a function of the pandemic. We certainly have seen increases and we've seen additional struggles there. And so one one goal with our work is to help people connect to services and supports. We want people to know that, you know, recovery is real. Recovery is possible. In fact, that's some of the reason why we're doing this innovation challenge, uh, to be able to hear about some of the innovative work that's happening at the community level, to be able to address people's uh, mental health or substance use needs. To have an innovation challenge, though, the implication is that what is out there now in system delivery may not be totally efficacious. For example, you're not looking for an innovative challenge to replace aspirin because that's so well understood, so well distributed. We don't need that. What What's the missing element, do you feel, in mental health services that happened through this very complex system we call the healthcare system? Yeah. So, you know, in, in terms of recovery work, I mean, recovery work is, is probably a newer area or component of the mental health field. And I mean, recovery work is about sort of individuals with lived experience. So individuals who are in recovery with uh, mental health or substance use challenges, leading peer-led organizations in some instances, or other community organizations, you know, employing individuals in recovery to lead components of their programming and work that they have within their organization. Um, It is definitely an evidence-based practice, but certainly a a somewhat newer evidence-based practice if we compare it to other things like CBT, for example. Um, But what we've seen already is that people in recovery are able to 
connect with other individuals that are struggling. They're able to give people hope. Often they share their own experiences and their own story of recovery. They're often able to connect people to services and support sometimes, you know, in instances where they haven't connected before. And so I think there's real space for, certainly we're interested, I'm interested, and SAMHSA's interested in learning more about, um, you know, some of those pockets of innovation we may not be aware of. We may not be aware of. We see recovery coaches now working in emergency departments, uh, in, in all different healthcare settings across the country. We are speaking with Miriam Delphin Rittman. She's administrator of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration and HHS Assistant Secretary. And so does the challenge seek to look at better delivery mechanisms, or are you also thinking maybe there's whole new medical approaches out there, or all of the above? Um, so we are looking for new approaches, uh, you know, n- not necessarily medical approaches, Often peer recovery approaches are about uh, individuals with lived experience, sort of meeting people where they're at and uh, developing innovative programming and strategies and approaches uh, to connect people with care and and services. Or people, individuals in recovery will say sometimes it's also just about walking alongside the person, walking alongside them and, and asking them, you know, how can I help you in your recovery today? And, and what comes up is what they focus on. Um, so it's, it's not necessarily a medical model, but nevertheless, it's a model where we're seeing significant impacts and significant uh, outcomes in terms of people connecting to care uh, and people being able to move into long-term recovery. And what types of organizations should apply for these challenge grant prizes and what will you be looking for? How will this all be judged? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's open in terms of applicants. I mean, certainly uh, peer-run, peer-led uh, organizations are invited to apply. But we also know there are other community-based organizations that have significant peer uh, recovery programs and, and uh, initiatives led by individuals in recovery. So it's, it's, it's pretty wide open. And then in terms of how we're judging the, the challenge, we're looking for, you know, how people operationalize SAMHSA's definition of recovery. We'll certainly be looking at um, how the program or initiative has helped people to overcome sort of challenges incorporating recovery into their behavioral health systems. So certainly if we have programs that are well incorporated into behavioral health systems or they have addressed those challenges in innovative ways, we're looking for that. Uh, And then, you know, we're definitely looking for the challenge to directly engage with larger and more diverse organizations to the extent that individuals and and, uh, programs are doing that, you know, connecting and partnering and collaborating with other groups, uh, you know, that's always wonderful to see as well. And they get a challenge prize grant. What can happen in the long term? You know, often challenge grants can lead to production orders in other federal agency contexts and therefore commercialization. What is the benefit for someone winning this challenge? Yeah, you know, so certainly the, the benefit of, of, of winning is, you know, certainly there are some uh, you know, resources attached to it, but also I think it's an opportunity to continue to, you know, to, to share uh, with us and with the field. Uh, what their practice and what their approach and strategy is. It creates opportunity for scale up. I mean, that, that's one thing I'm really excited about. You know, if we see programs and initiatives that are making an impact, there's there's all types of, you know, potential opportunities from there. Um, I'm always real interested in evaluation. So, um, so that be interested in, in knowing, like, is there an evaluation component? And 
grantees that win can certainly apply for other grants as well. So certainly other, a range of other possibilities in terms of next steps. Briefly, what are the timelines, deadlines? When will this all be concluded? So the, the challenge uh, ends, I believe, July 16th is the last day. But, but if folks are interested, they can go to challenge.gov you know, challenge.gov, and they can see more information about the recovery challenge there, including deadlines and and any other criteria related to it as well. Dr. Miriam Delphin-Rittman is administrator of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration and an HHS Assistant Secretary. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Evidence has mounted in the last year about the effects of social media on mental health. Now, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, part of Health and Human Services, has established a center of excellence on social media and mental wellness. Joining us once again with what the center will do, SAMHSA Administrator Dr. Miriam Delphin-Rittman. Dr. Delphin-Rittman, good to have you back. Thank you. Thank you so much. and appreciate being able to uh, talk with you. Now, at $2 million, this is not very big in terms of federal programs, but a center of excellence on mental health and social media. What are you getting at here? Yes, you know, we're excited about this. This is a newer initiative for us. And and sometimes we'll do this with a smaller, uh, you know, initiative uh, or a newer initiative. We'll start a bit smaller and then sort of scale up from there. But the goal of this, so again, it's we're looking to award a center of excellence on social media and mental health. The goal is that it will be focused on children and youth, and we're interested in um, disseminating information, guidance, training, uh, the impact uh, to include both risks and benefits that social media has on children and youth, especially as it relates to you know their mental health. Um, and so ultimately, the, the Center of Excellence, it will examine both social and clinical interventions that can be used to mitigate risk. So we're excited about that because there are, you know, certainly some risks that have a negative impact on on, uh, on adolescents and youth. And I guess at some point last year, there were some pretty lurid revelations coming before Congress and in the press about the effects of Facebook and Instagram and some of these platforms. Teenage girls, for example, were seen as being induced into believing they had a horrible body image and all of this and some pretty bad outcomes. Is this what prompted this, or is there a larger body of evidence, say from academia, looking at this that maybe didn't make the headlines? I would say all of the above. There certainly is a body of evidence from and, and research and literature within academia that's been studying the impacts of social media on youth, but also on adults as well. There, there is a growing body of literature there. Um, I mean, some of the studies, recent studies have shown that we know adolescents, for example, that spend more than three hours per day on social media, that they may be a heightened risk for mental health problems, uh, particularly internalizing, you know, internalizing mental health problems. So there, there is some research coming out of academia that suggests negative impacts. And from the SAMHSA standpoint, are there known ways to mitigate the effects of social media on young minds? You know, and that is some of what this uh, Center of Excellence on uh, Social Media and Mental Wellness, it's, it's some of what it will, gear, will be geared towards. Um, you know, we're interested in learning more about what some of those impacts will be, are. Um, in addition, the, the, some of the priorities will be sort of, for example, education and resources around risks and benefits of social media for children and youth. 
In addition, culturally and linguistically appropriate techniques focusing on active learning, consultation to support and assist children as well as families in sort of managing and, and navigating the digital digital world. Um, and then we're just looking for you know best practices and, and research updates in terms of what is the most current literature saying and what are the best practices in terms of mitigating risks and benefiting from some of the benefits of social media as well. We're speaking with Miriam Delphin-Rittman, Administrator of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration and an HHS Assistant Secretary. And is your sense that the mitigation techniques and best practices might be enabling young people to deal with social media at the level they are, only handle it better and understand when, well, you can ignore that bully or whatever the case might be, or some form of taking the phone away, some intervention to reduce exposure to it. You see what I mean, the difference? Yeah, big big difference, big difference. And so some of what uh, you know, I anticipate, and again, we're, we're still waiting for the, the different applications to come in and we'll score them and we'll award, you know, the center. But, but some of what we're anticipating is that we'll be looking to uh, provide strategies for people around coping with and, and managing social media in a healthy way. And what activities do you expect the center to perform on behalf of SAMHSA? Collecting literature? I mean, there must be so much, probably every other professor in the country has something to say about this. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, collecting literature certainly is a part of it, but then, you know, turning that literature around and developing training and education uh, and resource packages for uh, and approaches for uh, communities, whether it be schools or um, community centers or health centers or practitioners, uh, you know, ultimately it will be a, a, a training and, and technical assistance center, you know, around this particular topic area. So it's pretty broad, you know, in terms of what they can offer. But largely it's often training and education and resource development uh, and, uh, you know, along those lines related to sort of social media and mental wellness for children and youth. It sounds like there's an opportunity for collaboration with the education department, which has exposure to those types of organizations also. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, certainly the you know, Department of Education, uh, you know, there, there, there are uh, opportunities there, uh, you know, once the, once the grant is awarded. And so um, we, we think that this will bring real value to the space. We know that there are challenges in terms of what uh, young people and communities and families are experiencing, but that also that there are benefits. You know, there are wonderful apps that are emerging and coming onto the scene that help young people with tracking their emotions and, and learning how to manage stress and learning how to name and identify emotions. So, so we do want a balanced approach, sort of approaches that get at some of the risks, um, but also approaches Uh, and information and training that gets at, you know, lifting up some of the benefits as well. And what about the industry that offers these platforms? They're very good at running advertising, showing earnest people and how hard they're approaching the issues connected with what we all know is the problem with their platforms. But that's advertising. Can they participate perhaps in this center of excellence in a way that is appropriate, in a way that's objective, based on the data they actually do have? Yeah, you know, I think all opportunities, uh, you know, it's important for all opportunities and possibilities to remain on the table. I think this is an area that will require, you know, all all entities that that sort of touch this in any way to come together and think creatively about how to produce the best health outcomes 
for children and youth uh, and, and adults as well. When do you expect to make this award? Uh, and so this award, I believe, will be made uh, early, uh, end of the summer, early, early fall, but uh, with, within the next few months. Uh, it is it is out there now. And so we are looking to uh, uh, award this soon. And who is eligible? Academic institutions or nonprofits, non-governmental organizations? Yeah. All, all of the above, all of the above. And so if folks are interested in this, and certainly they can go to the SAMHSA website, and uh, we have an area or notice of funding opportunities, and there's additional information uh, about this there as well. Dr. Miriam Delphin-Rittman is administrator of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration and an HHS Assistant Secretary. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all, but I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old and uh, I remember I really wanted to play little league baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. and, and, And he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, 
I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time.
Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. 